This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Are people happy? You know, it's difficult even to know whether they think they are. The Harris Poll Survey of American Happiness, reporting in 2017 on whether people call themselves happy, reported low numbers, 33%. 33% call themselves happy, but on the other hand, the Gallup Poll, reporting in 2020 on whether people say they are quote-unquote satisfied with their personal life, reported very high numbers, about 90%. Well, what's going on here? The difference is not because people suddenly became happier between 2017 and, uh, and 2020. The Gallup percentage, as a matter of fact, was almost as high in 2017 as it was in 2020. It's because of how the question was asked. It was because how the question was phrased. And there are so many things, so many ways to tweak this. If you say, are you satisfied? They say one thing. Are you happy? They say another thing. If you say, are you happy? They say one thing. You say, are you happy about this? They will say another thing. If you say, are you having a good time? They'll say one thing. If you say, are you having a good life? They'll say something different. We aren't going to learn much from such numbers. I'm not one of those who think that that, uh, statistics and survey numbers can tell you nothing. But... They can't tell you nearly as much as I think most uh, practitioners think. My own suspicion, though, is that although most people have some share in happiness, or they, you know, they, or they wouldn't even know that there was such a thing, not many are simply happy. There was a 19th century economist. Anybody here an economist? Studying econo- economics, yes. Anybody studying a mathematician, maybe studying game theory? People who study those things would know who Edgeworth was. He was famous in both of those fields. He was a utilitarian also. He believed that uh, someday we would have instruments, physical instruments to measure happiness. He thought it would be like measuring temperature, measuring um, you know, energy, anything like that. Just as we have instruments to measure those things, we'd be able to measure happiness. So imagine a physician's assistant, maybe, putting a happiness thermometer in your ear um, or stroking it across your forehead and uh, reporting the result. Miss Jones, the readout shows that you're experiencing only 5.6 units of bliss. Are you feeling a little off today? The notion is absurd. Now, it is certainly true that there are certain kinds of social of psychological states, brain states, that can be measured. There really is a portion of the brain Brain physiologists sometimes call it the pleasure center. Uh, and you can map electrical activity there. But would that be an instrument of, uh, of measuring happiness? No, that begs the question of whether pleasure is the same thing as happiness, which is a whole other question. We can't measure happiness with instruments unless, by this, you mean the instrument of thoughtful conversation. The only way to know what makes people happy is to talk with them. Well, wait a minute, to talk with them, does that just mean asking a lot of people what makes you happy and collating all the answers? What makes you happy? Oh, you know, it's eating eating three Big Macs. You know, what makes you happy? Meaningful work. Uh, A lot of social scientists really do seem to think that that is the way to go. 
um, there has been an explosion of books reporting their results. But I think that this is nonsense too. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say you don't want to just ask people what makes you happy and collate the results, it's not because I don't think that people know anything about happiness. I think they do. Most people know something about happiness. And in fact, since outside of science fiction, there are no such things as happiness thermometers. If people didn't already know something about happiness, we could never find out more about it. Because where else could we start? But consider, even if, and I don't think this is the case, but even if happiness were just having good feelings, do people even know how they're feeling? Not, not always very well, all day Tuesday. Mr. Smith snaps at everybody around him. His wife knows that he's feeling grouchy. His children know that he's feeling grouchy. By golly, his coworkers know that he's feeling grouchy, but he may be oblivious to the fact. He's the last one to know. And knowing whether we're happy is a good deal harder than knowing how we feel anyway. Though, in fact, although we tend to overlook the fact, it's even possible to have a share in happiness without knowing it. There might be a husband and wife who were very busy with household responsibilities and raising their children and doing all of this stuff in the early years. And then later they look back on that time and they say, you know, we were happy then, weren't we? But they never thought about it at the time. They were too busy being happy to think, are we happy? Um, and as a matter of fact, usually when people are always asking that, are we happy yet? It's because there's some problem. It's even possible to be unhappy without knowing it. I suspect that there's a lot of that, and I'll come back to some of the reasons for that. Although, it, even though I would say people often have a better understanding of what makes them unhappy than what makes them happy. And by the way, the statistics, I criticize a lot of the statistics, but the statistics are probably more useful about what makes people unhappy than happy too. If, um, if, if a bunch of, there was one, uh, one poll that was widely reported on the internet, they asked a bunch of rich people whether their wealth made them happy, and they all said yes. <laughs> um, but on, I, don't, I don't put a lot of stock in that. But on the other hand, you go, you go into wealthy neighborhoods, wealthy high-status neighborhoods, and you find that the suicide rate is extremely high, much higher than in other, in other neighborhoods. And I would say that that does tell you something. One uh, social scientist studying that said, living in those, in those really wealthy high-status neighborhoods is kind of like being perpetually in middle school. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Uh, so, although it makes sense, I think, to begin with common opinions, people know something. They have inside knowledge. Happiness isn't something over here. It's something in here, right? So we have inside knowledge. It makes sense to begin with common opinions. It's not like expecting people to know something. I, we've all been taught the dangers of the, the ad populum fallacy, uh, believing something is true because everybody, everybody believes it. But you know, that's a, that's, that's a more useful starter to a discussion in matters of which we have inside experience than matters of which we don't. If I say, if I'm wondering what the moon is composed of, gee, is it mostly rock? Is it frozen water? Is it, is it uh, hydrogen ice and, and mixed with dust? Uh, is it a big ball of molten metal? What is it? 
Um, I'm not going to get very much information by asking the man on the street, well, you know, tell me about, tell me about what the moon is made of. He doesn't know. He doesn't have inside knowledge. But he knows something about his interior life. You can, you can, Aristotle can ask a question. He asks his students, um, when, isn't it the case? Don't you find that it is the case that when you do something, you do it for some reason? So because of some good that you want to achieve? And they all say yes. So do my students. They know. They know. It's inside knowledge. So it makes sense to begin with common opinions about happiness, but it doesn't make good sense to end with them. People, there are so many reasons. People may know something, but not know that they know it. Have you ever had that experience? Somebody said something, and when the end, they, they said something smart, you, and you recognized as soon as they spoke, I really knew that all the time, but I'd never thought about it. I never knew that I, that I knew it. There can be things that you know and you don't want to know. There can be fragments of things that you know that you don't put together. You don't connect the dots. All right? So the way to get beyond these common opinions is to make them cross-examine themselves. Our task is to sift through all of our ideas in order to separate the grain from the chaff. And the way to do this is not to pull ideas out of the blue, but to assemble reminders of the things that we do know and use them to reconsider other things that we know. So when I say cross-examining common, common sense, I don't mean taking something totally alien to common sense to cross-examine it. The materials for cross-examination are there in common sense too. Wise persons are those who have done this well. Wise doctrines embody the results of this procedure and reflecting on them we say, how could I not have seen that? I see it now. Now my favorite example of making common opinion cross-examine itself comes from a, one of the Socratic dialogues called Gorgias. It's one of the more contemptuous not contemptuous, contentious of the Socratic dialogues. These uh, folks whom Socrates is talking with, Gorgias and Callicles and so forth, are, um, are not happy campers, they, they, uh, and they're trying to tear him down. Well, one fellow in the dialogue named Callicles invokes the common opinion that happiness lies in continually having the greatest possible appetites and desires, but also having the greatest possible ability to satisfy those desires at the same time. And uh, Socrates backs him into a corner by saying, well, in that case, wouldn't it be, be desirable to itch as much as possible, but to always be able to scratch? The more you itch, the happier you are, as long as you can also scratch it all. Uh, well, Callicles is ashamed to contradict himself, even though it's beginning to be clear here that he realizes that he's, he's made a mistake somewhere. So he says, yeah, yeah, well, that, it would be that. That's okay. Uh, in his brilliant but annoying way, Socrates goes on to make Callicles commit himself to more and more ridiculous opinions. For example, by asking whether the itching must extend to every part of the body, he forces Callicles to concede that even a catamite, which is a boy or a man who seeks to be sexually penetrated, would have to be considered happy so long as he kept getting what he wanted. Callicles will not admit that he's wrong, but it's clear to those who are listening that he's lost this round. Now, what's happened here? What has happened here? There are several grains of truth in Callicles' appeal to common opinions. You can't say he's, he's just completely dead wrong about everything. 
He's not mistaken to think that happiness has something to do with the satisfaction of desire. Even Thomas Aquinas says, if we ever had complete happiness, it would lull all desire. It would leave nothing further than to be desired. That's not the same as saying that it simply is the satisfaction of every desire you have. Maybe your desires are transformed in the process. There are a lot of things that can happen here. But he's not mistaken to think it has something to do with the satisfaction of desire. He's not mistaken to think that anything rightly deserving of the name happiness would be abiding rather than fleeing, something not easy to lose. Callicles believes that. The problem is that Callicles himself does not separate the grain from the chaff. He doesn't, se he doesn't separate like that. He lumps all desires together, good and bad. And some desires are not good desires. They're, they're harmful to us. He thinks that to moderate any desire is to be as good as dead. And he doesn't consider the sense in which true happiness would have to ab abide. I mean, sure, you want, to, you want it to be not easy to lose, but does that mean it's like, is it the way that the water in a bathtub abides? If the water is pouring in continuously at the top, but the drain is wide open and it's pouring out the bottom at the same time and it never overbalances, it all drains out. Is it abiding like that? That doesn't seem to be what we mean by happiness. But Callicles just doesn't think this stuff through. Now Socrates helps us then to see that if Callicles were right, well, then there really would be nothing happier than the most intense and continuous itching and the most intense and continuous scratching and can't we all see that this is false. Callicles had appealed to common opinion, but this is a reframing of the question so that you could appeal to another aspect of what we know. And then say, oh, I guess I don't believe that after all. Aristotle does that too, by the way. For example, he examines the common opinion um, um, that he's speaking to aristocratic young men mostly, many young men of the upper classes, and one of the opinions that they offer when he says, well, what do, you, what do you think happiness is? They say, well, happiness lies in honor. People have to think well of you. So, you know, you can ask the question, well, would you be happy then if people honored you for qualities that they thought you possessed, but you knew you didn't? Almost everybody, I've tried this on my students too, almost everybody says, no, no, I, I, guess, I guess I wouldn't be. I guess that wouldn't make me happy. And so he says, well, then doesn't it begin to look like it's not so much honor that, that you believe is happiness. It has something more to do with those qualities that you want to be honored for. Uh, well, maybe so. That's cross-examination of common opinion, too. You can cross-examine. You can cross-examine. There are other ways of cross-examining the common opinion that, that happiness is pleasure. You can say, um, you, can say you know, have you noticed that... Uh, Pleasure gets old. Happiness, fulfillment, never gets old. Um, people say, are we having fun yet? Uh, there's, a, there's a problem here. We can distinguish. We do give different answers, and that tells us something between whether you're having a good time and whether you're having a good life. Uh, there are a lot of ways to examine all of that stuff. Well, anyway, has Socrates shown us what happiness is through his little exchange with Callicles? No. All he's done is explode an error. But even the accumulation of, accum of exploded errors is progress. Little by little, we get there. Eventually, we may be able to figure out the decisive questions and to ask them 
and maybe even answer them. This is the approach that the classical thinkers took. Aristotle takes it in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics. Improving on Aristotle, in my opinion, the great Thomas Aquinas takes this approach in his treatise on happiness and ultimate purpose. One by one, St. Thomas, what he does is he cross-examines the common opinions that happiness lies in wealth, that it lies in honor, that it lies in fame, that it lies in glory. You might think those, those last three are the same thing. They're not. That it lies in health and beauty, that it lies in pleasure, making each common opinion cross-examine itself. And just as Socrates did with Calipolis' opinion, he shows first that each of these common opinions is mistaken. But if you read him carefully, you see that he also recognizes in each case that there's something there. There is some grain of truth that's getting twisted or perverted. And if there wasn't, how could the mistake be plausible? Every mistake has to have some grain of truth in it or nobody would ever make the mistake. This is true of lies too, by the way. Every lie has to have some grain of truth in it, or we would never believe it. As a matter of fact, the best liars know this, and they pack as much truth in their lies as they can, and just have that little thing at the end, you know, that, that, that pushes the whole thing off the track. That's why they do it. It makes the lie easier to swallow. We are magnetized toward the truth. Um, but the best philosophers separate these errors, these impurities from the ore through this cross-examination and give us something closer to pure silver. We can expand on uh, Thomas Aquinas' procedure. That's one of the things I don't mean, I don't claim to be doing better than Thomas Aquinas did, but I did take up more alternatives than Thomas Aquinas did in this How and How, How Not to Be Happy book. I tried to do that. Besides cross-examining the common opinions that, he's, that he mentions, we can examine some of the others. For example, on one recent occasion, I asked, when I asked my students, uh, these were freshmen in this particular class, I said to them, what is happiness? Now, usually I get answers very similar to the kinds of answers that Aristotle's students give. They say, well, happiness, sometimes they add in a few others that he didn't talk about, like love. But uh, usually they say, people will say money um, or pleasure or, or, uh, or being liked, having friends. Um, but I asked them, and this time it was different. The first half dozen students, they were pretty lively. They, they answered my questions. They asked questions. There. The first half dozen students who answered my question gave variations on the same answer. What is happiness? They all gave variations on the answer, nothing but the absence of pain and suffering. That stunned me. I have to say that stunned me. The negative element so filled their minds for some reason. This is one of the reasons that I suspect that a lot of people are pretty desperately unhappy, that they were completely unable to suggest anything positive that happiness might be. Well, it's easy to see why someone who's often desperately unhappy might have lost the ability to imagine anything better than freedom from sadness and hurt. And it's certainly true that uh, a person consumed by pain and suffering couldn't be called happy. But I think there's a great difference between those truths and the idea that happiness itself 
is nothing but freedom from pain and suffering. But still, if we do expand on Thomas Aquinas' procedure, it would be reasonable to consider that as one of the alternatives that we take up. This is a common opinion, apparently. Happiness is nothing but freedom from pain and suffering. Could that be true? We might examine that, or we might examine another version of it. Sometimes it's a Buddhist alternative. Sometimes it's a sort of a postmodern alternative that happiness lies in annihilation. The, the uh, disappearance of self or the, of the illusion of being a self, uh, personal annihilation. One Australian philosopher made waves a couple of years ago by writing a book, his version was suicide. He, he, said, he said, it would be better never to have been. It would be better never to have been. He thought happiness is just the, would just be the, the aggregate of more pleasurable sensations over painful ones, and he thought they, the balance never is more pleasurable than painful. We're all suffering. It would be better never to have been. All right, so maybe, maybe that would be a, 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 a version of happiness I think is wrong, but that if you want to do use this procedure, you're going to have to take up in its turn, okay, and say what's wrong about it. And I did try to do that in the book. Another common opinion that we might consider is that meaning or commitment is happiness. That's a very, that's way at the other end. That's a positive element. It's very popular. Some psychologists who write about happiness, I mentioned that there's been an, a happiness industry in recent years, dozens of people writing about this stuff in this way. Some psychologists who write about happiness give that answer, meaning or commitment. But there are two problems here. One problem is that you may be building your castle of happiness on a self-concocted meaning that isn't true. People will say, Oh, meaning is in the eye of the beholder. There are no meanings that really inherit things. There are no objectively valid meanings. It's all, everything means whatever you, whatever you decide that it means. Uh, there's no naturally true meaning. There's, there are a lot of paradoxes with that answer, but look, I may, let's say that because of some freak experience when I see children swinging on a swing set, I associate that with jars of marmalade. Well, that could happen. I always think of jars of marmalade whenever I look at children swinging. But you know, that doesn't make children swinging mean jars of marmalade. I might spend my life pulling the wings off flies, and I might get, get, get nasty satisfaction from that, but that doesn't make life mean the pulling of wings off flies. You can't make this stuff up. And if it were, and even if it, if it, if there's, there's a sort of a paradox here because people say, you know, naturally there is no meaning in things. Aren't they saying that naturally there is some meaning in the will because it has this magical power to imbue meaningless things with meaning? So it looks like they do think that there's something natural here. Um, it's just rather perverse. That's one problem. You may, be, you may have self-concocted meanings that aren't true. The other problem is that even if you get the meanings of things right, even if you get them right, it's one thing to know intellectually what things mean, like knowing the proof of the Pythagorean theorem, but it's another thing to be taken up into that meaning. You know, it's one... There are a lot of ways to think about that. This is usually, especially true with personal knowledge. 
I, it's one thing for me to know abstractly that my wife is a good and a virtuous woman. It's another thing for me to be taken up into a relationship with her and experience that goodness from the inside. Um, what would it mean to be taken up into the, into the ultimate meaning if there is one? But I'm getting ahead of myself here because that's a hint about the vision of God, which I don't really want to discuss until later. Still another common opinion is that love or friendship is happiness. Look, I'm all for love and friendship. And it's, it contributes. Okay? But there are shortages here too. A lot of people say love is all you need. When I was, when I was a kid, back in, back in geezer days, um, well, no, I guess that was back in childhood. My geezer days are now, right? Okay. When I was, when I was a kid, you know, the Beatles were, were playing all these songs. They had a song, Love is All You Need. Well, it was pleasant for many people to listen to this and think that that might be true. What a simple answer. If only you have friends and love, you'll live happily ever after. A lot of people still believe that, but legions of discouraged people lurch to the opposite extreme because they've, they've been disappointed. They put all their eggs in that basket and they all broke. Um, because, you know, no two people can be everything to each other. It's not possible. Love is wonderful. But it isn't enough. I think one of the reasons for that is that it stirs up two longings, not one. And this is not very well understood by most people, but, it, it, but it's a matter of very common experience. It should be understood better than it is. Love stirs up two longings, not one. One of these two longings is the longing for the other person. And yes, that longing can be pretty much satisfied by the other person. But mixed up with that longing for the other person is always the fragrance of eternity. There's another longing here going on, and that just because the other person is not eternity, the other person can't satisfy that one. Sometimes people confuse, there's mistaken identification, they confuse those two yearnings, and they expect something almost transcendental, something infinite in, uh, in friendship or in mortal love. And uh, think, well, I didn't get it. I, it, must, it must be because love is a cheat. I'll get divorced. It must be because she's no good or he's no good. No, no, it's not that. You know, the great thing, the great thing about friend, true friendship or true love is that maybe, maybe it might give you an opportunity to become partners in walking into or trying to find out about that other, the object of that other longing. Could that be? Well, let's put it off for now. Still another common opinion is that virtue is happiness. I don't know how many people really believe literally that virtue is its own reward. We've all heard that, right? Virtue is its own reward. Well, and it is true that the exercise of some virtues is pleasant. It is, it is pleasant to exercise the virtues of friendship. It's pleasant to perform an act of generosity. Um, that, that, is, that is quite true. But uh, can virtue really make you completely happy? The ancient Stoics believed that. Influenced by them, Marcus Tullius Cicero was not a Stoic, but he was very influenced by the Stoics. And uh, at, in a dialogue with his friend Brutus, he takes up the Stoic argument and defends it. And he says that every virtuous person is happy. Brutus asks in reply, even in torture and on the rack. And although uh, Cicero toughs it out there, 
it's hard to believe Cicero, the most convincing testimony that the Stoics themselves couldn't actually live with their doctrine was their defense of suicide. The theory was, if you'd attained perfect virtue, you'd be perfectly happy. Epictetus said, however, remember this, the door is open. He meant the door of suicide. Be not more timid than little children, but as they say, when the thing doesn't please them, I'll play no longer. So do you, when things seem to you of such a kind, say, I will no longer play and be gone. Be gone from life. But if you stay, do not complain. Now, that sounds more like despair than happiness. I'm far from the only one who has made that observation. St. Augustine of Hippo, you're doing a reading group on his confessions, aren't you? I understand, isn't that right? Yeah, that's, he saw that this so-called happiness is closer to despair. He wrote, I'm at a loss to understand how the Stoic philosophers can presume to say that these, he was referring to various evils, torture, death, starvation, your friends all desert you, you're exiled, how these are no evils, no ills, though at the same time they allow the wise man to commit suicide and pass out of this life if they become so grievous that he cannot or ought not to endure them. Oh, happy life, which seeks the aid of death to end it. If it is happy, let the wise man remain in it. But if its ills drive him out of it, in what sense is it happy? Now, I don't think happiness has nothing, I don't think virtue has nothing to do with happiness, and I'm going to come back to that too. But can complete happiness lie just in the possession of virtue? That seems very unlikely. We might even ask whether happiness all comes down to luck or good fortune. A lot of people speak that way. They speak as though it does. Uh, many nations do put a goddess of luck in their pantheons. Gamblers murmur invocations to her. Come on, come on, come on, Lady Luck. An old Broadway favorite complains, they call you Lady Luck, but there's room for doubt. At times, you have a very unladylike way of running out. Even Machiavelli, writing in The Prince. Now, how seriously he meant this, we don't know, but I think myself that he was completely serious. He spoke of luck. You know, people say Machiavelli was a theorist of power. You read The Prince, it's all about power. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about power. The two themes that in his book are virtue and luck. What he means by virtue is very strange, but what he speak, when he, he says what luck is, he says luck is a fickle young woman who tends to give her favors, this goddess, to audacious young men who treat her roughly. So he, ad he advises to seize the day. Well, yet no one really thinks that luck is omnipotent. The ancient Roman writer Plutarch wrote, you know, they were always talking about, about luck and whether it, re whether it really did decide things or not. Plutarch said, nobody wets clay with water and leaves it. Assuming that by chance and accidentally, there will be bricks, nor after providing himself with wool and leather, does he sit down with a prayer to chance that they turn into a cloak and shoes for him? Well, no doubt there are a lot of other goods we might have investigated. Look, it took me 
250 pages to do this in the book. And I've only got, what, 45 minutes, an hour to speak with you tonight. But you know very well, I've left out a lot of things. We could say, does happiness lie in this? Does it 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 lie in this? But the drift of the argument, I think, should be beginning to become pretty clear. A lot of these things do seem to contribute to happiness in some way, but they aren't simply in themselves happiness. Above all in this life, in fact, it looks like happiness does need virtue because whatever other goods we possess, they'll scarcely be good for us apart from virtue. We won't know how to enjoy or make use of them otherwise. When I was a little boy once, I, uh, you know, I, I guess I understood that friendship is a human good. <laughs> but I tried to get the other kid to be my friend and not to play with the, with, the, with the third kid by giving him a stick of chewing gum. And then he left the other kid and he came and played with me. His, his price was very low, I guess. But, uh, but that wasn't really a friend. I did not gain a friend that way. I didn't understand it. If you don't have the virtues of friendship, you're really not going to be able to experience this good. If you don't have virtues like moderation and temperance, you're not going to be able to enjoy uh, what wealth you have. Too much wealth, you may think the more the more the better, and that isn't true. Aristotle even said that without virtue, what we call good fortune actually is bad fortune. It may be bad for you. I think that's true. So you do need virtue. It's just that contrary to the view of the Stoics, virtue alone is not sufficient for happiness. Happiness requires not only virtue, but also a sufficiency of the other necessary things. Good character, yes, but also good fortune. We might call what I've just expressed the worldly wise man's view of happiness. Cultivate virtue and hope for luck. Well, from one point of view, that's a pretty good answer. There's a certain heft to it. Many people would more or less agree with it if it were presented to them. Perhaps most would. It not only tells us how to guide ourselves and what to aim for, but it even gives us some ideas about how to teach the young and how to provide for their futures. Try to bring them up so they have good character, but, you know, try to provide some other things too. But from another point of view, the answer is pretty shabby, isn't it? The worldly wise man's view is pretty shabby from another point of view because even the defenders of this answer, and this is very, this is very close to Aristotle's answer, by the way, admit that such happiness is radically, radically incomplete. And not just because you might not have unbroken good fortune. It's fragmentary. It's vulnerable. It's imperfect. One thing that I've left out is that Aristotle thought that the best life was a life of contemplation of the truths that philosophers think about. But even Aristotle concedes that you can't be thinking about them all the time. And that we're not the gods and we've got, we, we live in, in communities with other people and we have bodies and you can't just be contemplating all the time. So even that wasn't really, it didn't give him an out to his, to his theory. And he says, it's fragmentary and incomplete. Did we work through all of these arguments? Did we do all of this work? Or the work that you could imagine us doing if we did investigate all the alternatives? Just for that? 
What's really wrong with this answer? I mean, apart from the obvious fact that we may not have luck. <laughs> um, what's wrong with it is that not even virtue plus, quote, everything else can satisfy us. Not even this can lull all desire. Permit me to use myself to illustrate the point. This has been true ever since childhood, and maybe you've all had uh, similar experiences, maybe not evoked by the same thing. But in the midst of certain experiences, there comes over me a certain longing. It's a desire for a far something that neither fortune nor character can provide. There are a lot of things that stir it up, but often it stirs. This has been the case since I was a kid. Often it stirs when I look at the sky and gaze into the face of the moon and behold the stars. Something moves here. Sometimes it happens when I look, really look, upon the face of another person, especially my wife. I see in retrospect that I've experienced this longing since childhood. But I was not sufficiently reflective to be aware of it until my early teens. The desire is not constant in strength, at times, I can almost forget it. Yet it's profound, and it's compelling. And it's just not about the same kind of stuff that all these other goods that we were talking about is about. What is it about? Not everybody talks about this sort of thing, but probably most people have experienced it. I said before that people don't always know how they're feeling. I think people don't always recognize certain experiences, but I think most people have experienced this, whether they noticed it or not. Maybe while contemplating the celestial courts like me, or maybe while walking in a forest, or while hearing the call of a morning dove, or watching the intricate beauty of a dance, or grasping a mathematical truth, or even seeing the world reflected in a mirror. Whittaker Chambers seems to have experienced it upon gazing at the convolutions of his newborn baby's ear. He says that's when he began to believe in God. C.S. Lewis speaks of it as, quote, that unnameable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier, at the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title, the mere title of the well at the world's end, the opening lines of the poem Kubla Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves. Elsewhere, he tells us how when he was reading the first lines of a poem by Longfellow, he, I quote, desired with almost sickening intensity, something never to be described. In another place, Longfellow himself describes it too. He describes it as a feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain. That's strange. Now, longing, do you notice that some feelings are directional and some are not? Um, I'm, I, may be, I may be in a bad mood and it's not about anybody, I just am. It's not necessarily directional. Anger, on the other hand, is directional. I have to be angry with somebody or with something, even if it's only the state of my whole life. Uh, joy, I'm, there might be something that provokes my joy, but joy is not necessarily directional. I just enjoy it. I repose in it. I rest in it. Uh, now, longing, like, my, like certain other passions, is directional. 
just as my anger is toward someone, my longing is for something or someone. So what is this longing for? What is it, it, this, it, this mysterious object of this longing? To what is it trying to compel me? What do I want? Is people come up with all kinds of ways to get out of this. People who have noticed this experience in themselves try to explain it away. Let me consider some of the ways of explaining it away. Is what I want when I gaze at the moon the moon? Do I just want the moon? Surely not. If title to the Earth's satellite could be signed over to me and I could keep the moon in my garage, the longing would not be satisfied. It would only attach itself to something else. I am pretty sure. Is what I want beauty? But you know, when I gaze at the moon, I'm already beholding its beauty. If all I wanted was beauty, then I'd be satisfied, wouldn't I? On the contrary, rather than satisfying my longing, all that beauty stirs it up. Is what I want to go to the moon. That's what I believed when I was a kid. I devoured stories of outer space. I wrote to, this was during the 50s. Most people didn't even know there was a Cape Canaveral. Uh, I wrote to them and they sent me publicity photos of rockets blasting off and that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I wanted, I was fantasized constantly about traveling to the stars. Now I have no doubt that setting foot on our silver sister in the sky would produce a sense of accomplishment and a temporary exaltation. That would be great. But I suspect that then standing on the moon and looking back at the earth, I'd feel that longing looking at the earth. And I'd just been there. You know, you can feel it also when you look at a far away peak of a, peak of a hill, you're at a height. And you, you know, there's a sense of longing that there it is. And then you climb up to the top of the hill and you don't have that anymore, but you look down at the plane and you have it about that. So what's going on? What is going on? It isn't that. Is what I want, some people would say, oh, what you want is the unattainable as such. You don't want something that happens to be unattainable. You want uh, the unattainable. It's because it's unattainable that you want it. Somebody might think that the moon's very unattainability is the reason for its charm and that this is why attaining it would be anticlimactic. Yeah, what does that theory really explain? A prize that is more difficult to attain may be more attractive to pursuit than an easy one, but to want something is to want to have it. And to pursue something is to want to catch it. Who in his right mind would tell a thirsty man how lucky he was that whenever he reached for a drink, the water was withdrawn because you have the, you know, the pleasure of the desire for the unattainable. Uh, if I do attain the object of pursuit and yet it leaves me unsatisfied, the proper conclusion is that what I really wanted, or at least the strange something that I also wanted, was something else. Is what I want to be, somebody would say, well, what you want is to be united with the all, and the moon is just a symbol of it. Well, I'm, let's think about the all. That's a lot of stuff. I'm happy to be in a universe with snails, tomatoes, garlic, thunderstorms, socks, and galaxies. But who would wish to be united with the aggregate of all those things? 
And suppose I did imagine myself united with the aggregate, even if it's an interesting aggregate, to suppose myself united with that aggregate is to not be myself anymore, I'm annihilated. So who is it that's, in, that's enjoying the, uh, the attainment of the goal? Having been annihilated, I could hardly be satisfied in my longing because I wouldn't be at all. Well then, is the longing that I feel when gazing at the moon merely the sublimation of my longing for a woman? That's what Freud would say. Well, in that case, you know, I wouldn't feel it any longer because I've been married for a half century to the bride of my youth. I've experienced the satisfaction of eros and love is sweet. But there is this about amorous embraces. They quench only amorous desire. They do not quench that other unknown desire that is associated with it. In fact, they provide that desire with new occasions because the power of the moon's face, in my case, is now rivaled and in fact outdone by the power of the face of my beloved. The light that I see in her face though is borrowed from somewhere else. Her face is merely its mirror and receptacle. You know, there's a kind of a translucency, a kind of a glow, a kind of a, a gleam that the manufacturers of makeups try to, try to, uh, try to, try to create. They, they try to sell this stuff to women. You know what that really is about. You might think that it's just because you want the, person, the person's face to look healthy or, or uh, sexually attractive or something like that. No, there's something else about it. When lovers look into each other's faces, they see the reflection of that light from somewhere else that isn't just the beloved. And they're trying to simulate that, even if they don't know it. Is my longing merely a genetically programmed response to the sight of faraway things in open spaces? Steven Pinker might say that, the evolutionary psychologist. Some evolutionary biologists do say such things, since our ancestors are supposed to have lived on the savanna, on the open plain. But even if there were an adaptive advantage in liking distant vistas, I mean, because after all, if we all had to live on the savanna and you didn't, you didn't, you didn't like it out there in the empty space, then you might have a hard time adapting. Well, the fact remains, though, that when I gaze at the moon, I don't just like it. I want something. What? An unappeasable ache moves at me, a plangent plucking of the strings. Not a pain. And yet more like a pain than a pleasure. What could be the adaptive value of having that? How does that help pass on my genes to my descendants? Besides, although the moon's my chosen example, human history testifies that the coals, the coals of this ache, can be stirred up and raked up and blown into flame by all sorts of things. Now, I don't know what those things might be for you. In my case, another of the things that rakes it up is the very specific experience of hearing Johann Sebastian Bach's air on the string of G. Tell me how that helps pass on my genes to my descendants. Could it be that my longing is not just for something beautiful, but for beauty itself, for the infinite and original beauty of which the beautiful things of this world are but reflections. That was St. Augustine's answer. That was St. Thomas Aquinas's answer. And I think here we're closing in on the quarry. Loveliness, you know, is such a massive and bewitching reality that at times it threatens to undo us. And here's the thing about loveliness, as Augustine says, 
I don't usually, when I'm giving a talk, read long passages, but this, I mean, this fellow nails it here. He says, question. He wants you to engage in a sort of a conversation, a dialogue, an interrogation of the beautiful creation. He says, question the beautiful earth. Question the beautiful sea. Question the beautiful air diffused and spread abroad. Question the beautiful heavens. Question the arrangement of the constellations. Question the sun brightening the day by its effulgence. Question the moon tempering by its splendor, the darkness of the ensuing night. Question the living creatures that move about in the water, those that remain on the land and those that flit through the air. Question all these things and all of them will answer, behold and see, we are beautiful. Their beauty, he says, is their confession. The word confession at the end of that passage is meant literally. Augustine views beautiful things as wordless, poignant testimonies or witnesses. And he asks, who made these beautiful transitory things? Which cannot completely satisfy you, unless it be the unchanging beauty. And he says the same thing about every good in life. All created goods are reflection of the unchanging good. He says this to God, expressing that idea. <sighs> Ambition seeks glory and honor, although you alone are to be honored before all and glorious forever. By cruelty, the great seek to be feared. Yet who is to be feared but God alone? From his power, what can be wrested away? Or when or where or how or by whom? The caresses by which the lustful seduce are a seeking for love, but nothing is more caressing than your charity, nor is anything more healthfully loved than your supremely lovely, supremely luminous truth. Curiosity may be regarded as a desire for knowledge, he says, whereas you supremely know all things. Ignorance and sheer stupidity hide under the names of simplicity and ignorance, yet no being has simplicity like to yours, and none is more innocent than you, for it is their own deeds that harm the wicked. Sloth Laziness pretends that it wants quietude. But what sure rest is there, save the Lord? Luxuriousness would be called abundance and completeness. But you are the fullness and inexhaustible abundance of incorruptible delight. Wastefulness is a parody of generosity. But you are the infinitely generous giver of all good. Avarice wants to possess over much, but you possess all. Enviousness claims that it strives to excel, but what can excel before you? He goes on, anger clamors for just vengeance, but whose vengeance is so just as yours? Fear is the recoil from a new and sudden threat to something that one holds dear and a cautious regard for one's own safety. But nothing new or sudden can happen to you. Nothing can threaten your hold upon things loved. And where is safety secure save in you? Grief pines at the loss of things in which desire delighted, for it wills to be like to you from whom nothing can be taken away. Now you notice he's not just saying God has all this other stuff. He's got enough new cars and things like that and if we go to heaven then we'll have enough, have enough new cars and things too. No, he's saying he is in himself the abundance for which we, which we falsely seek in a bunch of new cars, okay? Augustine's argument is that the only possible sense in which we can have everything is to have him. All of the created goods we desire are just pale reflections of the uncreated good that is himself. 
in a twisted way, even those who are blown by the storms of greed and craving are trying to be like him who is all-sufficient. So he says, quoting again, thus even those who go from you and stand up against you are still perversely imitating you. By the mere fact of their imitation, they declare that you are the creator of all there is and that there's nowhere for them to go where you are not. Now, someone might say that all this is an illusion. We can satisfy our desires for earthly things, but we cannot satisfy our longing for the eternal and infinite good because it doesn't exist. And if these earthly things aren't enough, as we've seen that they aren't, then this sort of person says, well, tough. We just have to settle, grow up, stop chasing after pixie dust. Life is hard, and then it stops. You won't ever be happy. Can the objector be answered? I think he can. Even the pagan thinker Aristotle knew if he'd just gone one step further, if only he'd done that. Thomas Aquinas figures it out. Even the pagan thinker Aristotle knew that nature makes nothing in vain. In other passages, he says, God and nature make nothing in vain. But you know, uh, even the evolutionist, even the person who believes in natural selection, ag should agree, nature makes nothing in vain because it's not going to persist, persist unless it has some adaptive value, unless it's for something. In our own flatter, flatter idiom, we might say that everything in us has a function and that everything includes our natural desires. That everything includes our natural desires. It doesn't just include the fact that I have eyes and I can see or I have a heart and it circulates blood through me distributing oxygen and, and nutrients to my organs. It includes my desires. They are always for something. I'm not saying, of course, that every specific thing that I desire is within my grasp. I might, I might desire ice cream that tastes like the number seven and is brought to me like fairies whenever I curl my toes. And if I desire something like that, I will be disappointed. There is no object of that kind of a longing, but that's not a natural longing. That would be a, a rather weird acquired longing. The generic object of every natural desire must exist. I naturally desire food in general because food is a real thing that human life requires. If there were no such thing as food, there would have developed no such thing as, as a desire for food. I naturally desire friends because friendship is a real thing and I need that too. If there were no such thing as friendship, then I would not have that desire either. The function of natural desire is to point the way towards satisfaction, and no natural desire exists unless its satisfaction is possible too. Now, the curious thing here is that this particular natural desire that we've been talking about, it must then have a satisfaction, but it doesn't have a satisfaction in anything in the created order. If, every if for every natural desire there is some possible satisfaction, and if we've learned from, if, as we've learned from experience, Nothing within our natural experience can fully satisfy the transcendental desire that I've been discussing, a desire which is also built into our nature. So if, no matter what we want, we are driven to ask, is this all there is? Then doesn't it follow, by the sheer logic of the case, 
by sheer philosophical reasoning, without any recourse to revelation, mind you, that desire points beyond natural experience, that we must go, so to speak, out of this world. And I'm not thinking of Mars. Thank you for your attention. Ask me anything. I've been asked by the organizers to repeat your questions uh, so that they can be picked up the, by the audio here. I'm probably close enough for it to pick up my voice, but it's probably not close enough to pick up yours. So if I keep repeating you, it's not just that I'm OCD, although maybe I am, but, uh, but that's the reason. Okay? Yes, sir. So I'm, I'm with you on the answer to the evolutionist, but let's say they, they come back. Uh, all right, so that desire developed, it, it helped us get through our infancy. Now it's a vestigial organ. We should be beyond it. Well, it doesn't seem that it doesn't seem that it is something that helped me get through infancy. I mean, I just don't, don't I just don't see how it has any adaptive value at all in that sense. And, and in, in the evolutionary point of view, it would have to be something that helps me to pass on my genes to my descendants. Either, either, uh, for example, a, a very interesting argument is sometimes made that. There might be some genetic, there might be some adaptive value in the in uh, in a genetic predisposition to sacrifice yourself for your children, if you've got enough children, that is, because they share some of your genes. You see, so okay, the gene packet that's me ceases to exist, but the gene packet, but all these gene packets who share some of the same genes as me, including the gene to sacrifice, <laughs> they still go on. All right. All right, I can see that argument. There is an adaptive advantage there. If, uh, if Pinker is right about the living on the savanna, there could be an adaptive advantage to liking wide open spaces. Although then I don't know why people enjoy spelunking. Um, if, um, if, there is, uh, if, if it's advantageous to, to marry mates who are healthy and uh, a sign of lack of health um, might be Asymmetry of the face, we might be attracted to symmetry, okay? Maybe there's an attractive, but how, what, what would be the attractive value in a longing for something that can't be satisfied by anything in this world? You know, one uh, evolutionary uh, biologist, the sociobiologist Ed, Ed E. O. Wilson, who's very good on the social instincts, um, social insects, he's, he's, he's brilliant about the social insects, it's when he steps out of his field and starts talking about people that the problems arise. He said in one of his books that, that why do people believe in God? It must be that there's a God gene. Well, why is there a God gene? It must have had adaptive value. So he says, I suppose what it did is that it, it, helped, the, um, it helped the group, you know, the tribe, to, to stay together, to have unity. Well, isn't that an awfully roundabout way to help the group to have unity? It wouldn't it have been a, a, a much shorter evolutionary path. Here, what you're, what you're saying is, first of all, unless the group believes in some non-existent thing, it won't stay together. Why should that be? 
And then you have to also evolve a belief in this non-existent thing. And then you have to also evolve um, a match so that this non-existent thing will satisfy their desire. Why not just skip all that and have a gene for staying together? And in fact, the, you know, the, if the uh, believing in God doesn't always put, help people stay together. Sometimes it drives them apart. There have been such things as religious wars. So there's, it's all hand-waving, I think. There are things that, the, that arguments about natural selection can explain. But there are things that they can't. And I think the distinctively human qualities, the, the ones that pertain to rationality and uh, to, the, to spirituality, beauty, uh, and, uh, and love and so forth, this is, this is more than just, it's even more than just bio-altruism. There's something more. There has to be. Yes, sir. Um, so I'm curious about the natural desires that you mentioned. So yes. Maybe an objection coming from Revelation would be something along the lines of original sin so messed up. Our natural, our human nature, that we can't actually any longer look to the nature to bound this nice human mm -hmm. um, I think you, might, you don't have to be like a hardcore, totally person to think this, but you can just kind of like a Sure. Sure. Um, the re repeating for the for the recording, I'm asked. Well, m might another answer not come from evolutionary biology, but from Christianity itself? Somebody might say, "But a lot of these things you're calling natural desires—they're not natural desires. We just have them because we're messed up." Well, I, I suppose that this person would still agree with my conclusion, even though he came to it by a different path. But but let's take his let's take his path anyway. Um, I, I think that Thomas Aquinas' analysis of what the fall did to us is, is pretty good. Um, by are the creational design, by the, the intention of God, our minds would be in obedience to him. The reflection of his eternal law in our minds, which is the natural law, would be, would be there. And our minds would then control our desires and our appetites and our, what Plato called our spirited impulses, okay? They would keep, so everything is, God is governing the mind and the mind is governing all that other stuff in us. Now what Thomas Aquinas says is, I'm gonna borrow an image here from the, from, uh, the, the uh, Boston College philosopher Peter Kreft. Uh, imagine God is like the magnet and the mind is, the, is an iron ring that's touching it. And these and the desires and the appetites are these other iron rings that are that are that are connected. You know what? You know how it is. If you break the first iron ring away from the magnet, then the the other iron rings fall away from the first iron ring. The magnetism is transmitted through them. And this is sort of what happened to us when our minds broke free of subjection to God. Uh, we decided to go it ourselves. It isn't that we attained a different nature than we had to begin with. We have the same nature. Um, it's that our nature fell into disorder. We don't have radically new desires. It's just that the desires are out of control. They're not being regulated. And there, there are no, people sometimes will say, oh, but things like anger that we feel, these are evil. Um, I once talked to somebody who said, uh, who said it, was so, it was so reassuring to her when Jesus curses the, uh, curses the tree in, the, in, the, in what may be a parable, um, 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 because it showed that Jesus was angry, and so he sinned, and Jesus was a sinner just like me, and it reassured her, which was bizarre. 
But that's not the biblical view. You know, anger is a good thing too. Anger arouses us. It is for us. It is in us for a reason. It arouses us to the to the well-ordered defense of endangered goods. The problem is when it's directed toward inappropriate objects, when it isn't well-ordered anymore. Sexual desire is appropriate, but when it's when it's directed toward uh, toward inappropriate objects, you know, you really or inappropriate persons, you have a problem, or to yourself, or to or to in, you know, I mean, I don't have to go through the list. Um, these, uh, so the disorder in us isn't that we acquire radically new desires. It's they just, it's that they just aren't, aren't, uh, aren't behaving themselves. Um, a term that, a Latin term that the, um, that the medieval writers often use, they call this the fomes, which means the, the tinder. You know, you, you don't light a fire by putting a match to a log. You light the fire to something that lights easily, the tinder, the kindling, and it goes up in smoke, it goes up in flames, and then then you add more, more wood and more wood and bigger and bigger pieces and the whole thing burns. Well, we have this tendency because of the fall to go up in flames. And uh, I think that's what's going on. Now this has been obscured by some translations of the Bible. This is a more common problem in uh, Protestant translations. It, I don't, I've never seen it in a Catholic translation of the Bible. But in some, in the New International Version, for instance, I think they finally revised this, but in the first half dozen or so editions of the New, the New International uh, Version of the Bible, um, where St. Paul speaks of strong passions of the flesh. They changed that and they said, our sin nature. It's curious that it would have been in a, in a Protestant translation of the Bible, because actually the Protestant reformers themselves said that that attitude is a heresy. They said, you don't have a sin nature. You have the same nature God created. A, a nature can, can, can come only from God and anything that he creates is good. But your, your nature is in bad condition. And uh, yeah, I think, that I, and I think that that's correct. Okay, who else? I, I think we have time for about one more question. Only one? Oh yeah, gosh, okay. Well, well, all right. Ooh, I'll try to give shorter answers. Yes. Um, so, excuse me. I want your thoughts on. So I've heard this argument used before that uh, joy, like you have joy and you have happiness, and these are two separate things. That happiness is solely worldly, but joy is with the Lord. And so, I wanted your thoughts on: Are these really two separate things, or one? Well, I think when people make that distinction, probably what they're trying to avoid, and I, I don't blame them for wanting to avoid this is the common, many people when they say happiness, they think pleasure. And what they maybe are really trying to distinguish when they say happiness is not the same as joy, what maybe in my terms, they're trying to distinguish is mere pleasure from happiness. And happiness, pleasure is not the same thing, okay? You experience happiness, happiness isn't, isn't, it isn't even a primary good, it's a secondary good. I don't pursue my friends for the sake of the pleasure of happiness. Because in that case, if I could get the pleasure of happiness by dope or by stimulation of, the, of, of some section of my brain, that would be just as good as having the friend, right? I, rather, I, I practice friendship for its own sake, and then I have pleasure. Um, now, well, then how would I use a word like joy? In many contexts, the words happiness and joy, joy, happiness properly understood, are interchangeable, although we tend to use we tend to use the word joy more often for the exuberant phase of happiness, okay? For the exuberance of it, not just, 
not just that dimension of it, that it lulls all desire, that I'm perfectly fulfilled, but that this is wonderful. It's ecstatic. <laughs>